Hey everyone, um, I am sure that if given the chance, you have some questions for God. These are the type of things that you probably think about as you're taking long walks on the beach or you're laying in bed awake at night, you know, why this, why that. Um, but I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that God has questions for you. If you read the Gospels, this time when God in, 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 in came into a human body and began teaching and interacting with humanity, there are 307 questions in the Gospels. Somebody stopped and counted all of them. Jesus was constantly asking people questions. In fact, most of his teaching uh, could be considered what was, was delivered in the form of a question. Now, this is maybe a stretch for some of the audience listening in, but how many of you remember the uh, TV show Columbo? Uh, this is a, a, a show from back in the 70s, started in the 70s, and right here in the room, of everybody that's in the room, two-thirds of the audience remembered. That's two people out of the three that are here. Now, Columbo was played by actor Peter Falk, and uh, some of you may know him better as the grandpa in The Princess Bride. You remember he's reading the story of The Princess Bride uh, to uh, Fred Savage. Anyway, Columbo is the opposite of the hard-boiled, tough detective. So he's short, he has messy hair, uh, and he just seems completely, maybe a little clueless and, and definitely completely harmless. And then uh, he's talking, he's asking questions, and it just is clear. In fact, a, a, as the audience, you know that he's interrogating the bad guy, but it just seems like Columbo doesn't know that. And the bad guy feels like he's completely getting away with it. He's lying, and Columbo's just totally buying it. And then in every single episode, there's this moment where Peter Falk begins to walk away, and then he goes, oh, hey, just one more question. And then he would ask this question, the question. And it was at this moment that the suspect realized not only was Columbo not harmless, that he was smart, and the bad guy had actually walked right into his trap. In fact, the question was just so perfectly worded that there was just no way out, that it was clear that Columbo knew exactly what had, what had happened. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus often asked these perfect questions. They were insightful, they cut through a lot of junk and just got right to the heart of the matter, and they were convicting. They got under people's skin. In fact, people both repented or got angry and sometimes confused at the questions Jesus was asking, but he was asking great questions. Here's just a few examples of the over 300 questions we find in the Gospels. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you look down, why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye, but pay no attention to the plank in your own? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? What good is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul. These are questions from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where, where he was teaching them just the way of, of the kingdom. Now these questions are so perfect that you realize as he's asking them that he's kind of got you cornered and there's no way out, that you're convicted by these questions. And that's what we're going to explore in this series. Now personally, I remember back in grade school, I had to rem uh, memorize part of the Gettysburg Address. Now I've never been to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, never seen the battlefield, but of course, you know, you remember four score and seven years ago, uh, or the world will little note nor long remember what was said here. You remember a lot of those words, right? Now, we can, uh, it's one experience to have memorized it. I mean, those are powerful words from a great speech, and it's one experience to know it in a class.
classroom setting, having memorized it, you know, in fifth or sixth grade or whatever it is. But it's completely a different experience to be standing on the Gettysburg battlefield and, and thinking or taking in those words that were said in that moment in that environment. So I want, you, I want you to do something with me, and I know this may not be the easiest thing in the world. You're sitting on your couch, you're drinking your morning coffee, or whatever it is you're doing. But I want you to imagine with me that you're, you're rewound, you're in a time machine all the way back to first century Israel. And you're a first century Hebrew man or woman who lives near the Sea of Galilee. Now, teachers who wandered around the countryside gathering crowds and sharing with people, I mean, that was a pretty common feature. It's not like people spent their, their uh, evenings going out to dinner and going to the drive through So a teacher showing up, he could draw a crowd and people would want to come listen to what they have to say. And of course, the crowd is listening with this really critical mindset because they're hearing a lot of different stuff. Now, it's kind of a national pastime to gather around here teaching out in the middle of the wilderness. Um, so it's not a, a strange thing, but you've been hearing rumors about one particular guy. And people are saying the stuff that he's teaching is just blowing their minds. I mean, the word that the gospel uses repeatedly is that people were amazed. In fact, people, you're hearing rumors kind of spread throughout the community that people actually go to visit Jesus and they're sick. And he, they leave, and they're not sick anymore. Something has happened in that interaction. You actually even heard a couple of rumors that, that so, uh, someone with leprosy went and visited Jesus, and he walked away completely clean or free of leprosy. You even have a cousin who heard from a friend that knows a guy that swears that he personally knows someone who was paralyzed from the neck down and that he was brought to Jesus by four friends and then, and then he walked out carrying his own mat. You heard that story. Now, part of you is thinking, you know how rumors work and you know how this stuff kind of gets around. You're a little skeptical, but you're going to go listen. You're going to check it out. So you and a buddy, you meet after work, and you walk a few miles out of town along the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's not hard to find Jesus because there's this huge crowd. In fact, the problem isn't finding him. The problem is, is you're so far back at the edge of the crowd that you're not thinking, you're thinking you're not going to even be able to hear what he has to say. You've walked all this way, and you're not even going to be able to hear him. And then you see one guy get in a boat and kind of paddle out from shore a little bit. And then that's the guy everybody's looking at. That's Jesus. And he's in a boat and he's speaking from it to the crowd that's gathered along the shore. And that's where we are when we get to Mark chapter 4 verses 1 through 9. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in it out on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering his seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell along the rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but... When the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Verse 9. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, <laughs> 
I think it's worth noting that I grew up around the church, and if I were to hear a preacher say, okay, let's read the story of the parable of the sower, I would have probably tuned out because I'm like, well, I've read that before. I've probably heard sermons before. I know exactly where this is going, and so I would not have ears to have heard what was being said. But I want you to rewind and think about our first century Hebrew friend. I mean, this person had walked miles to hear this guy. There was this huge crowd. And he gets out on a boat and everybody gets calm. The crowd gets silent so that they can hear him teach. And then he says like eight sentences and gives them the basics of how to garden. And then he just paddles away. That's it. That's the end of the teaching. There's no like, well, here's the moral of the story. There's no three points that kind of all start with the same letter to make it memorable. There's no personal application. There's no sheet you can fill out. He doesn't even quote a, a Bible verse in all of this. There's no invitation, no come forward as we sing. In fact, uh, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, writes that Jesus knows that he's being cryptic because he ends this teaching by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He's saying there's something more here, but you're going to have to dig for it. Now, Jesus' disciples were confused as well. Because remember, they'd just walked away. If you read the first three chapters of the book of Mark, they'd walked away from jobs, careers to follow Jesus. And then they get this lesson on gardening. In fact, look at what it says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 10. Mark chapter 4 and verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. Verse 11, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Now, I know we know this, but I just think it's important to remind ourselves of what the kingdom of God is. And it's this, this thing that Jesus had come and he was speaking about, he was saying was near, he was inaugurating. He was saying the kingdom is here, the kingdom of God is here. And of course, this was very powerful. These were powerful words, powerful imagery to a people that lived in Roman-occupied territory. So in the kingdom, you achieve greatness. Not by amassing wealth or, or power or influence, but you achieve greatness, Jesus said, by serving others. That's the kind of kingdom that he was, he was ushering in. In this kingdom, you actually disarm injustice. Not by dominating your enemies, but by absorbing hurt and insult and pain. And then responding with blessing and kindness. People in this kingdom are treated with dignity, no matter their station in life, no matter their family history, no matter who they are. Everybody is treated kindly, is treated well. Everybody is lifted up. I mean, this is a beautiful vision for, for, a, for a type of kingdom that I think any of us would want to live in. It's, it's a vision for the way the world can and should be. And Jesus said, I'm here to bring that into reality. However, the secrets are given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is in parables. Well, Jesus, what? Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be better just to make everything plain and clear? I want you to see what he goes on to say in Mark chapter 11. Uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 4, uh, the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Why, Jesus? Verse 12, so that... This is so strange. They may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. I I'm confused, Jesus. Don't, don't you want 
everyone to know the truth? Don't you want everyone to turn and be forgiven? Shouldn't you just like record a TED talk to YouTube and upload it and get bazillions of views? I mean, why don't you create a BuzzFeed top 25 list of the best ways to usher in the kingdom? I mean, people love those. People will read that. Why don't you write a book with some really snappy uh, chapter headings? I mean, why, why not do something like that? What, what is Jesus up to? Why, why is he so uh, confusing and, and, and oblique in what he teaches? Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, I kind of assume that Jesus showed up on the earth just to clear everything up, not to make it more confusing. I mean, I like clearing things up. In fact, that's part of why I enjoy the process of, of preparing a sermon and, and trying to, to make something that makes sense and that's engaging, that, that, that alleviates the confusion sometimes people experience when they read scripture. I'm hopeful that people walk away with more clarity than confusion. That's part of what I want to do. One time when I was a kid, our family was visiting my grandmother, and uh, we were with her over a Sunday, and we went to her church. And it was just a little tiny church out in the countryside, and they were in the prayer request portion of the service, and the preacher is droning on and on and on, and he's talking about someone named Sister Juanita. Sister Juanita. Now, there's two things. Number one, Juanita is my aunt's name. And two, my mom is actually a twin. So Lynette and Juanita, and they're often confused for one another, and we're often having to help people say, no, 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 that's my aunt, or that's my mom. In fact, there's been a time or two, don't tell him this, where my dad has gotten them confused. It can lead to a little bit of embarrassment. Now, I'm not a twin, so I don't know if that's a big deal, but um, it can't be fun to have your identity kind of absorbed by someone else, not being your own person. And so this preacher kept saying, Sister Juanita, Sister Juanita. And some part of me, little kid me, thought, man, this is not okay. Somebody needs to correct him. He is confused, and somebody needs to alleviate his confusion. And I'm sure my mom is just being gracious rather than saying, oh, actually, my name is Lynette. She's just being gracious, and she'll forgive him for using the wrong name. But you know what? I should say something. I should stand up for my mom. So finally, as a little kid, I worked up the courage to, in the middle of this service at my grandmother's church, kind of shout out. The next time the preacher said, Sister Renita, I shouted out, her name is Lynette. Of course, the room got really silent because this little kid is shouting in the middle of it. And everyone, including my mom, is very confused because it actually hadn't dawned on me that there may be another human being in the world named Juanita, and the preacher was actually offering a prayer request that had nothing to do with my mom or my aunt. And I don't even know why I thought it would. We were visitors there that Sunday, but I had kind of brought the service to a screeching halt just to try to make things a little bit more clear. Of course, I just made them more confusing. But my basic understanding of Jesus was that he was showing up on the world just to clear up the confusion that he should walk around and he should say you're wrong and you're wrong and this is right and she's wrong and he's wrong and everybody's wrong and I'm right and follow me. And then maybe post like a thesis or a creed with the top 20 or 30 things that we need to be doing. But that's not what he does. This parable of the sower is the first parable in all of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the very first parable, and it's a key to the rest of Jesus' teaching. Now, based on what Jesus actually did and said, there was something more important than just making everything clear. Now, I, this is going to seem a little confusing because I think for a lot of us, we have just lived our lives thinking that Jesus' goal was to just bring enlightenment to everybody. But based on what Jesus actually said and did, he had a higher priority than just clearing everything up. 
And I think this is a bigger deal than we give it credit for. Jesus didn't want people to simply follow a paint-by-numbers pattern. He wanted people to internalize these truths and be fundamentally transformed as human beings. Not just just, just complying with the law, but the way that they lived in the world. He didn't want to give people a list of how to just do everything perfectly. He wanted people's hearts. He didn't want people just to do the right thing. He wanted to just transform and change the way they saw and interacted with the world. But, but here's the thing, and here's the thing that he knew that we so easily forget. Information without transformation can be dangerous. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with somebody who pointed out very helpfully that Christianity has actually been at the heart of a lot of conflict around the world. Um, that it's caused a lot of problems throughout history. And I don't know if you know this, but that is true. That people who claim the name Christ have actually started quite a few wars, started quite a few conflicts. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who have a lot of conflict on, on social media and they still claim the name Christ. See, people used information they found in scripture in history to justify slavery. People used information in scripture to marginalize and mistreat different people groups. People used information in scripture to seize and consolidate and abuse power. And we've seen this throughout history. Richard Dawkins is kind of a well-known atheist, part of a group called the New Atheists. And he wrote a book called The God Delusion, some of you may be familiar with or have read. And it's, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but it's pretty interesting. He said in a speech that he was giving, he said that it's fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threats to humanity through viruses and disease. But he said this, but I think the case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, like a deadly virus, but harder to eradicate. And what he's saying is, is you look at world history and you can just see like bloodshed and heartache and pain that was caused by information that people took from the scriptures. However, and this is so important, it is people who were transformed by God's word that initiated peace. It was people who were transformed by scripture who ended slavery It was people who were transformed by Jesus that started hospitals and orphanages. It is people who have information who cause problems, but it is people who are transformed by Jesus who bring about peace and who bring about harmony. Because information without transformation is dangerous. And Jesus knew that. For example, we as a nation can and should pass laws that require companies not to abuse their power, not to abuse their workers, not to discriminate based on race and gender. We can and should pass laws that do that. That is a good law. But unless there is an actual culture change within the company, it is possible to find ways to comply with the law, but to abuse and discriminate in other ways. Turns out you can force compliance, but it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is the human heart. Now, if the CEO, if their heart had been captured or transformed by Jesus, well, then that can bring about cultural change. So why didn't Jesus come and just spell out everything for us? Because Jesus wasn't looking for compliance. He wanted hearts. Therefore, Jesus didn't simply offer information, he offered transformation. Because 
He didn't want people who could just follow a checklist, but he wanted people who would actually follow him. Because you know this, you parents especially know this, you can be technically right and your heart still be wrong. Therefore, I think the fundamental question of discipleship is not, am I getting this right? Am I doing everything precisely right? The fundamental question of discipleship that you need to be asking, that I need to be asking, is this. Does Jesus have my heart? Do I care about living out his kingdom rules and principles and ideals? Do I have his vision of reality? Do I want to treat people the way that he wanted them to be treated? Let's wrap up by going back to where we started in Mark chapter 4. Jesus actually does us a favor, and it's one of only a few times that he actually gives us his own commentary on a parable. But in Mark chapter 4, uh, look at verse 13 with me. He says this. This is so interesting. He actually asks two questions. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? Well, no, of course not, or they wouldn't have asked him. Uh, how then will you understand any parable? That's fascinating because Jesus is saying that what he's teaching here is the key to understand so much, to unlock so much of what he is teaching. But look at verse 14. This is what he says. The farmer sows the word. Now the word, of course, is this new vision of reality, this new vision of this kingdom, this new, this new opportunity, this new hope that people have that even though they have messed up their lives, that there's a way to be redeemed and renewed. That's the kingdom. And then he says in verse 15, he goes, Some people um, are like a seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Because some of us hearing this have allegiances to other powers and other structures. We are impervious to the teachings of Jesus. It, it completely falls on deaf ears. The truth has no hope of sinking in. Sometimes, unfortunately, and maybe this feels a little judgmental, but in, sometimes as I preach, I can see this on people's faces. Just see it on their faces. The lights are on, but nobody's home. There's no, this is not resonating with them at all. Do we have ears to hear? Look in verse 16, what he says. He goes on to explain. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Some of us realize that there's something there. There is something real here. There's something substantial here. But if we begin to get a hint that actually following Jesus might introduce our lives with any difficulty or hardship, we're out. We're done. We will always choose the easier path. And so what happens is, those of us that are like rocky soil, we accept this easy, lifeless faith over any hint of hardship or sacrifice or difficulty. Do we have ears to hear? Look at verse 18, what he says there. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke out the word making it unfruitful. S some of us hear this, and we know it's true. We know it's right. We know it's good. It resonates with us. But this reality of the kingdom isn't the only thing growing in our lives. There's competition for those nutrients and those resources, and eventually those other things will win out. They will choke out our faith. Our spiritual lives become weak, anemic, and other things claim our attention. That's, that's eventually what will happen. Do we have ears to hear? Verse 20, 
He says others, like the seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Some of you, years ago, heard just one small nugget of truth. Somebody said something in passing, and you knew there was something there. There was something there that was real and substantial, and you begin to follow it. Where did you hear that? What is that? Who said that? And somebody introduced you to a, to a Bible study or a Bible or a church, and you begin to, this begin to expand and grow. And you pursued it, and if you step back, you can see this incredible benefit over your lives. You raised children whose hearts were captured by Jesus. You now have grandchildren who are walking in Christ. And maybe your life isn't perfect, but you realize that it is full of the things that matter. That there have been this, this crop that produced uh, 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Do we have ears to hear? Now let's get real for a second as we finish up this morning. I imagine that many of you um, have been listening. Okay, I see there's four different types of soil and I'm not really sure I'm one of those really bad ones, but I'm not really sure I'm one of the good ones. I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I'm in the middle. I'm not doing great, but I'm not doing horrible. Well, let me just say, if we're not that good soil, then we're one of the other ones. Jesus only gives us four options. He asks us a question, and he only gives us four choices. This is a multiple choice. And if you're not the good soil, then we've got something else going on in our lives that isn't good that we need to take care of. So here's the question we need to wrestle with. What is going on in our hearts? Who is at the center of our hearts? I hope that this question gets under your skin. I hope that if you feel like, I'm not sure Jesus is the most important thing in my life, that you feel unsettled until you can answer that question definitively. Because this is just a starting point. We can't get further down the road of discipleship without dealing with this. What is my heart all about? Who am I all about? Am I open? Am I receptive? Do I care? Do we have ears to hear? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. Um, grateful for a few moments to consider your word as we think about this first parable that is this important key in understanding so much more about reality. I just pray that you would help us realize what is truly going on in our inner person. Lord, I know that there's so many things that vie for our attention, but I pray that you would give us a moment of clarity and you would help us to see what's truly at the center of our hearts, what's truly at the center of our lives, to understand that, that Jesus wasn't here just to list out everything that we think we need to make everything clear, but he was here to transform us, to draw us into a, uh, an unconditional relationship with himself. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would work. It's in Jesus' name I pray. We'll talk to you next week.